Welcome to Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey. I'm Anne Roby, an HR advisor and consultant focused on building strong employee engagement and meaningful company culture. And I'm Sherry Essig, an executive and life coach, and I work with people who are done settling for less than success and happiness. So, Anne, I know you remember the day we were on one of our planning calls, and I said, you know... I know someone who might be an interesting guest. And then I think I followed it up with, well, well, I don't really know him. I worked with him (laughs) a really long time ago on a trademark, but I've been reading his LinkedIn posts and he just sounds like a super interesting guy. And of course, as we always do, we're like, yeah, go for it. And so I am super excited to welcome Josh Gerben to our podcast. I first crossed paths with Josh in 2010, so quite a while ago, when I was rebranding my business to Flow Dynamics. First of all, I can't even imagine it was 2010 that you were doing that. That's crazy. I can't believe it. But not as crazy as when I first launched the business, but that's (laughs) way too long ago to even talk about. So I don't even remember how I found Josh. What I know now is he was super early in his business, but I will say he was awesome to work with. And then we connected on LinkedIn. And over the years, I have so appreciated the posts that he writes, especially he writes so movingly about how much he loves being a dad and the way it's changed his priorities. In fact, Josh, I think you might've let it slip in a LinkedIn post that you have an alter ego as a Swifty. Pretty sure I read that. I do, I do. Yeah. And he also posts great stuff about entrepreneurship and the intellectual property part of his life. So just a couple of details about Josh. He is a father, a husband, and an entrepreneur. And when he was 27, two years out of law school and working at a law firm, he decided to launch his own firm. I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but I'll just say he launched it from a parking garage. And I'm sure we will get to hear a little bit more about that. That was 16 years ago. And the firm has grown quite a lot and has a range of clients. I really loved this range from bootstrapped entrepreneurs to private equity-backed startups, iconic brands, professional athletes, public companies, and even a sovereign government, which is a pretty cool thing to be able to, you know, kind of be able to say to people. To say that Josh comes from a family of entrepreneurs is a bit of an understatement. This is the last thing I'm going to say about Josh because I'm going to turn it over to him, but he is the fourth generation to start and run a business. His great-grandfather owned and operated a junkyard during World War II. His grandfather started a company which sold land-moving equipment, and his dad then started an automotive repair business that grew to 13 locations by the time Josh was entering law school. And now, Josh with Josh Gerben IP. So Josh, welcome to the podcast. We are so excited to have you here and I will turn it over to you now to talk about your journey, just a bit about where you are today and some of those significant moments along the way. Well, thank you so much for having me and thank you for that very kind introduction. I'm indeed a Swifty when you have a 10-year-old <laughs> daughter in today's world and she has a lot of friends and you take car rides with them and dropping them on and off to different practices, you end up listening to a lot of Taylor Swift. <laughs> We're not going to make you sing a clip of a Taylor Swift song. Though. I really want to change bracelets, though. I want to check out your bracelet collection. Is what I really want. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's there. I, I didn't wear any today, but yeah, we we got a few. Funny. Well, tell us a little bit about your journey. What's sort of other than being a Taylor Swift fan? What's gotten you the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs? Sure. Well, 
I really identify very strongly as an entrepreneur. My journey really started as a child. My dad ran, as you mentioned, automotive repair centers, and that was pretty much our life. On the weekends, I would go into the shops with him. I would take rides with him from shop to shop to pick up things he had to do. Our entire life was around this business. And so I grew up in that. And then when I went away to school, the idea was always, you know, I was going to probably go into the family business and help him grow it further. And as things happened, the, the business ended up not doing well enough to allow for that. And I ended up starting my own business, which is a law firm. And then I've been running that for the last 16 years. And... I'm just curious, running a business, especially a small service-oriented business, isn't always the most predictable and not always the most stable. And so I'm curious, how was the arc of your dad's businesses? Yeah, it, it was really interesting in the sense that when you operate a retail business, somebody has to open and close that store. So he would have to be there first thing in the morning, and he was typically the one closing. So he was not around a lot. He was always at the shops or a shop somewhere. You know, If somebody called out sick, when you're the business owner, if you don't open the shop, it doesn't open for the day. So the work ethic that he ingrained in me from my earliest memories through the time I was in high school it was incredible because I saw somebody that knew how to just constantly be on, constantly work and provide a living for his family. Because ultimately, you know, that's not an easy thing to do. Anybody that's gone out and run their own business knows that while there's all this commentary these days about work-life balance and, you know, I don't work too hard. Well, the vast majority of small business owners have got to work really hard. Otherwise, they're going to be out of business tomorrow. And that was always my dad. And and I, I, that's the greatest gift he gave me was was knowing how to work really hard and, and have a good work ethic. Sherry sort of rattled off a bit of your family history with, in terms of entrepreneurship, but also strikes me it's... I don't see a lot of lawyers in there. And so I'm kind of curious what your path took you through high school and maybe college and and how you decided this was something that you wanted to do. Absolutely. Yeah, I am the first lawyer in the family. And it was actually also ingrained in me very, very early on that I was either going to law school or medical school, all the way from my grandparents through my parents. You know, I'm Jewish and my dad's parents were my Jewish grandparents, if you will. And anyone that's ever had a Jewish grandparent will know how much they push education. (laughs) And so they were always like, your father never did this. You're going to do it. And, And my dad even had a rule. He said, you're not allowed to come and join me in the family business unless you have an advanced degree. A college degree doesn't get you a job with me. And that was his rule. So I knew in in undergrad, there was never a question. I was going to the next thing. Now, I was terrible at science and math. So there was no chance I was going to be a doctor. I knew it was either going to be law school or business school. And at the end of the day, I thought that law school was the thing that most interests me. I always had interest in politics, you know, just sort of as on a side. And I thought, well, the law seems really interesting. I'll just go do that and we'll see what happens. But yeah, so my family very much pushed me into that. Now, some people would argue, oh, you need to let the child make the choice, all these other things. I will say as a parent, I don't know as it was someone that's 18 or even 21 or 22 years old knows what's best for them over the long term. They haven't had that arc of life to see how the education will play out for them. And my parents knew. They were like, if I had gone to this additional school or I had done these things, maybe I would have had an easier time and we want that for Josh. And so they pushed me right along and said, you're going. And, and I'm, I'm very glad I did. 
But how did you feel at the time? Because that feels like none of us have a, uh, the maturity and the 2020 hindsight that we do. And I absolutely hear the appreciation in your voice now. But how did that play out for you then when you were going through it? Oh, I was fine with it. Funny, I think a lot of kids might revolt or say, no, I don't want to do that. Matter of fact, my my roommate in college, his dad was a doctor and it was like, you have to go to medical school. I mean, it was no question. I mean, his his parents would literally show up at our apartment during college every Saturday and Sunday to make sure he was up to study. <laughs> they were like super strict. My parents weren't like that. My parents were like, get whatever grades you want. You can go whatever law school accept you. We don't care, but you're going to go. <laughs> You know, it was like that kind of thing. And I honestly thought it would be good for me. I I never questioned that. And I always thought that they knew what they were talking about. And I agreed with them. You know, what is interesting about that is the, I'll say the directive, because it really doesn't sound like pressure. It sounds more like it was like this directive, but the directive wasn't actually to be a lawyer. You were, your plan was to come back and run the family business. And so there's something also interesting about not necessarily grappling with, do I want to be a lawyer? Because you, you thought you knew what you were going to be doing when you were done with school. That's right. No, I, I did not anticipate that I was probably going to be the classic lawyer that goes to a firm and works their way up to a partner and all that kind of stuff. That was never my intention in going to law school. It was always getting a knowledge base that I could come back and help my dad run and grow this business that he had started. So what was that like when this path that you had been groomed for and wanted, suddenly the business fails and that's not an option? It's like anything in life that you start to see the writing on the wall. And as law school was progressing, the business was not doing so well. I also, as I got a little older, realized that I did things differently than my dad did them. And it was probably going to be a difficult situation for me to walk in and be an equal to him at some point in his company. You know, he had run this company for 30 years. It was his. And even though I'm his son, he's not exactly somebody that's easy on his children, right? It's not like, oh, hey, you're my son, you know, appoint you king. No, he was going to hold on to the throne until as long as he could. It was very clear that. So I did start to worry that there would be personality clashes and that maybe it wouldn't be the best thing for me to be working alongside of him. And so it wasn't like this traumatic event where all of a sudden one day the business implodes and my life changes forever. We started to see that writing on the wall. Now, I would have probably still gone and done it and who knows what would have happened, probably good things. But like you mentioned, my dad got over his heels, basically. He grew the business so fast and had so many locations without the proper management in place and without controls on inventory and all these other things that cash flow became a huge problem. And all of a sudden, he had to basically sell the business under duress to avoid a bankruptcy. And I learned a lot from watching that happen, but it was really tough to watch him sign away his business. I'll never forget, I sat in his office because I was I just finished law school and I was trying to help him with the sale, just thinking through the terms of the agreement. And he had to sign it and he signed it and he had to fax it back because we're in that age where you still had fax machines. And he's sitting there in his office, like he's going to fax this over to the acquirer. And he's like, this is it. Once I send this, this is it. I'm like, that's right. I was like, once you send this, the contract's done. And it took him a minute to send the facts. I mean, it was the hardest thing I saw him probably ever have to do in his life is to sign over 30 years of work. Now, he was getting paid for some of it, but he wasn't getting paid nearly what he had hoped he was going to be able to get out of that business one day. Yeah. What what impact do you think that had on you watching him go through that? Well, I learned a lot. When I watched him 
go through that six or 12 month period where the business unraveled. I learned that if you have a business for 30 years, doesn't mean you're going to have a business for the next 30. And there's a lot of complicated things that start to happen as a business grows. And so when I started my business, I didn't start big. I didn't take anybody's money. I I had $5,000 in my checking account and I opened a law firm from my apartment. And I slowly took on clients and did a little bit of advertising and took on clients and did a little advertising and took on clients until it got to the point where I felt, okay, maybe I can hire someone. But that took a while. And even as we've grown to this day, we haven't grown beyond... I mean, we're at 15 people. And I am aware of the management challenges that that creates based on how I saw my dad grow to a company to 100 people and how difficult that was to manage. So watching somebody so close to you go through the failure of a business does instruct you on how you are going to run a business going forward. And it and it's how I've run my business. And some would argue to my own detriment because I have not been aggressive in certain cases and I have not pushed envelopes because I am aware of what the downsides are if you do that. And it definitely scared me away from, from growing something that was outside of basically what I could control. Yeah, it sounds like one of the things that you took from the experience of watching your father lose his business was that being cautious is a good thing. Absolutely. And I have also now as an attorney that works with, entre- you know, as you mentioned, entrepreneurs, and I have seen some really good successes. I've seen people sell businesses for hundreds of millions of dollars. And I've thought to myself, I am in the wrong business. And then I have also watched people running good businesses lose their business. And what I've realized is that there's going to always be the outsized successes because there are people that are going to take risks that could easily have doomed them. And they might get a little lucky. They might be really good at what they're doing. The timing might be right, all of those things. And the next thing you know, you're reading about them getting this huge buyout in the newspaper. But there's going to be many, many more people that get too risky with their business and end up losing everything. And we never read about those people. And so I think that going through these experiences in my childhood really informed my ability to run a stable business for my family as opposed to one that was more likely to have risk of catastrophe, essentially, at the end. So when you think about these lessons that you learned, you know, from your dad and how you started your business, how is that informing your parenting? The thing that I worry about the most with my kids is that we do live in a house that is financially secure. And when I was growing up, there was a joke, half a joke, half truth, whether or not my dad would make the mortgage payment that month and whether we could stay in the house. And I mean, he would literally say this to us, which I'm thinking back, I'm like, why would you ever say that to a child? But nevertheless, (laughs) this is what he would say. And there was times where we had money. Like we knew we had money. Like we knew business was good. There was never a concern about what we were spending or what have you. And then there were times where we felt like we had no money. And, And so I had kind of been through that. What I learned from this experience of going from having money to not having money and worrying about money as a child was that if you work really hard, like my dad did, the chances are you're going to be able through brute force to be able to provide for your family and to be able to keep a business running up until a certain point, obviously. 
And so what I worry about with my own kids is that they're not going to necessarily understand that because it's been stable for them. And it likely, knock on wood, is going to be stable for them till they get to a certain point in life. And then, oops, the real world's going to hit. So how <laughs> do I, as a parent, prepare them for that, that it's not always just roses and money's never a problem and we don't worry about money. And we're trying to find ways to do that, but it is very hard to sort of manufacture that as opposed to it just being a part of life. And so that is something that informs my parenting and that I think that the greatest gift my parents gave me was my work ethic because that's how I'm at where I am at professionally today. And I very, very much want to give that to my children, but I'm not exactly sure if I'm going to be able to transfer that in the same way that my parents are able to transfer it to me. But it's something I work on. You know, it isn't always an interesting question on what gifts are you intentionally giving your children and which gifts are you giving your children just because of how you're moving through the world. And, you know, it sounds like for your parents, and I don't, I'm not saying anything about how intentional it was, but certainly the way they were moving through the world is how you got the gift of seeing this work ethic modeled and how it informed your worldview that not to take things for granted, I think is what you're saying. Don't assume that just because things are going well today, that they'll be going well tomorrow. And so I'm curious, and I don't even know if this is an answerable question, is perhaps you won't be able to give your kids the same sense of there are no guarantees that you're that you got from your parents or this sense of you really need to keep your eye on the ball. But I'm curious what gifts, if you thought about it for a moment, do you think you are giving your kids? Sure. I think that's a great question. And the one thing that I'll point out is that when you grow up in a shop, it's more blue collar. And what I do right now is very white collar. Obviously, I'm a lawyer. My first job, Uh, I was 11 years old. I wanted to work. I wanted to make my own money. That was always important to me to make my own money. And my first job was cleaning bathrooms and floors in my dad's shops. And so they used to laugh at me, the mechanics, because I would come in and I'd put a mask on and I'd put gloves on because the bathrooms, I mean, if you've ever been in a shop bathroom, it ain't not pretty. But I'd clean those things. They'd shine. And I'd mop the floors. I'd wipe everything down in the showrooms. I, I was the cleaning crew at 11 years old. And that continued when I got a little older you would have trailers of tires backing up to the stores you know, for inventory. And you'd have to unload these, I mean, literally a tractor trailer full of tires, thousand tires fits in them. And you have to unload them and bring it up to, you know, there's a conveyor belt that go up to an attic and then you have to stack them and organize them and all this stuff. It was pretty significant labor. I don't have a shop to send my kids to, to do this. And so when you do that and you're in an attic in the middle of summer and it's however hundred plus degrees up there, and then you get to work in air conditioning and read documents for a living, you're like, man, I've got it made. And and so I worry about it so much because I don't have there. Of course, I could have them go get jobs, which I will. But you worry about you kind of know what your what really worked. What was the secret sauce that made this work for me? And I know that I can't replicate that. And I know that's not reasonable to expect, but it's something that that I really think about. As far as the gifts that I I give them, I would hope that I give them the gift of my time. One thing and. I mean, my dad would admit this, is that he just wasn't around enough. He had to work so much and he had to be physically present in a shop. And 
the first thing I did when I started the firm in 2008, and I said, this is going to, and this is long before I was married, long before I had kids, I'm going to be fully remote. I am not going to be tied to having to be in an office every day because I knew the strain that that would put on me, just physically having to be somewhere, and ultimately a family. And now, because I work from home, when my son comes home from school, well, actually, I have four kids for what it's worth. So I have a, just for context, I have a 10-year-old daughter, I have an eight-year-old son, a six-year-old son, and a one-year-old son. So when the three oldest come home from school, my daughter right now, she's got her own thing. She's 10 going on 14. So she has her own stuff going on. She doesn't necessarily need me physically as much right now, but my boys do. They want to play football outside. They want to help them get set up on the, the PS5 or whatever it is we're doing that day. But I can spend a half an hour with them, even if it's just throwing the football outside at 430 and I'm there. And then I might go back to work for a little bit because I'm a hundred yards away or less than that. And then I'll come out and I'll cook dinner for the family and we'll eat. And then I might have to go work a little bit more. But through this whole process, I'm there. And they don't really know that I'm working per se, but I'm with them. And so I think that I'm giving them that gift of my time. And I hope that that's going to be a major difference maker for them. And they're going to think back to their childhood and say, wow, my dad was always there. What do you mean he was working all the time? I would also suspect, and obviously I don't know your kids and have never been around you and your kids, but just based on how you write about parenting, I would guess that you're also giving them this gift of the joy of being a parent or the joy of having them in your life. Because there's just the way you write about them. These are not business writings. This is just so from the heart. No, I appreciate that. I I think that because there's a lot of talk today in today's culture about people that don't want kids or that's a lot of work, which it is. It's very expensive, which it is. And they're like, well, my life will be easier if I don't have kids. It will be. But having kids is such a unique part of the human experience. It is something that you can't explain. It's impossible to explain. And watching the world through a child's eyes is the most refreshing thing that just can ever possibly happen to anybody. Right now, my kid, my eight-year-old and six-year-old son are very much into football, right? They NFL, we're from Philadelphia, we're Eagles fans. We went to a game on Christmas Day. And it's an hour and 20-minute ride from my house. It's 80,000 people. It's traffic galore. It's nothing I would ever do on my own. I would never be like with a bunch of my friends, be like, hey, let's go to the game. It's way too much work. I don't want to deal with that. But for my kids, of course. And we go there. And the party that these two had, dancing in the stands, yelling and screaming, high-fiving everybody around them. I mean, you can't even explain how that feels as a parent. And you're having fun too now. It's fun to be a part of that. And so living life through kids is something that I would never not want to have experienced and and that's and I that's why I write about it. I think it's 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 such a great experience and my hope is that I'm modeling how to be a parent for my kids because I very much believe that every generation has the ability to get better just like I'm hopefully a better parent than my parents were and I don't say that as a knock on them I'm just saying they learn from their parents I learn from my parents and we're all getting better as we go and my job is to make sure that my kids will be better parents than I am so that the next generation will be even better because we need good people in this world. I mean, obviously the last few years have been pretty tough in this country. We need more good people. And my hope is that, you know, I can help produce some of those people and then even more after that. When you just described going to the football game too, you're really talking about kind of that innocence and unbridled joy in a lot of ways as well. And I do think 
scrubbing toilets and, and being the cleaning crew taught you a tremendous amount, but I'm kind of guessing there weren't as many of those unbridled joy moments for you. And so having that opportunity to sort of not only give that to your kids, but also live through it as well must seem pretty amazing for you personally. It is. You know, it's interesting you say that. I mean, my eight-year-old son is, he loves to ask me the questions. What was the most favorite thing you did as a kid? Or what was what was something you did at my age? And I actually, and I, look, I had a very blessed childhood. My parents love me. They're still together to this day. I want nothing more than to be with my nuclear family. When I'm with them, I feel complete. But we didn't do a lot because my dad was always working. So I went to Florida twice. That was the extent of my travel until I was 18 years old. We lived a very insular life. We went to the Jersey Shore as well. So you live in Philadelphia, you go to the Jersey Shore for a little bit in the summer. And in the winter, we went to Florida, but literally like twice over you know 18 years. So we never really went very many places. We didn't do a whole lot of things. And so the memories are kind of few and far between from my childhood because when you're not doing unique things, you don't really create memories. And that's something that I really even realized in adulthood where I worked for the first 10 years of building my business and did the same thing because I, you know, this is how you grew up. I didn't really travel. I didn't really do much. I didn't create much memories. And I'm like, what happened to the 2010s? Like, I don't remember much about the early 2010s because I was just working. And so I am really big on trying to create moments that create memories so that there are those things that the kids will remember when they get older. And then I now get the benefit of those memories as well, if I'm being selfish for a second. Well, I'm not even sure I'd call that selfish. I mean, I, I really think that that is, I mean, it's cool you want to do that as a parent, but but you also, like, these are memories not only for them, but for you as well. Like you said, where'd those 2010s go? But you will always remember seeing the Philadelphia game on Christmas in 2023. And what an amazing thing. And what I love that I think I'm hearing, Josh, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I mean, it really seems like you have structured your business and your life in so many ways to be this balance. From the beginning, you were a completely remote organization while you worked your ass off and, you know, you don't kind of blink to the 2010s were gone. You really set it up in a way such that you could be available to create some of these memories and take your daughter listening to Taylor Swift to her whatever practice it is and go to the, with the boys to the football game or or what have you. And so I love this idea of balance. I mean, is this something that has been intentional or do you think this has kind of just happened through osmosis a little bit? Oh, no, it was intentional in the sense that I knew what it was to work a retail job, to have a shop, to have places that had to open and close and to have those physical locations. And so I knew that if I had that, I would always be tied to it because I watched my dad be tied to it. And to this day, I mean, we live in a in a world of technology. If you own automotive repair centers, you need to be there. <laughs> you have to see what's going on. Like You have to work with the people that are physically there. And someone's got to open and close those stores every single day. And if someone calls out sick, that's you. And so I definitely very much felt that I did not want to repeat that. And that was one thing I wanted to change in a business I would run. And believe me, I've also thought when you run a business long enough, you always think, is there something else I can do? Is this going to be it? And every time I get an idea for a new business or something I might want to try, I always run it through this test of basically what are the handcuffs going to look like? Like how much am I going to be tied to it? And what, how is that going to change my lifestyle of just being able to be available for the family on any given day? And 
never really passes that test. It's very hard to find a business that'll that'll pass that test. You know, it's so interesting to me that I hear so much respect for the way you talk about your parents and your father and the business that he built and ran. And at the same time, you've talked about it wasn't easy. Sometimes you had no idea if there was going to be money. So I'm just so curious what it was that drew you to still being an entrepreneur and being on your own. It's that autonomy. It's really, really addictive. (laughs) I saw as much as you have to work, which I've worked a lot, and as much as my dad had to work, which he worked a ton, you still were doing it because it was yours. You weren't doing it for anybody else. And at the end of the day, whatever you build or wherever you lose, it's yours. So after law school, I took a job at a law firm. It was a small law firm in Washington, D.C. Because you can't just start a law firm like right out of school. You have to actually know how to practice law. And I had the best boss in the world. Her name was Kathy Bailey. And she taught me a lot about how to be a lawyer. But I also knew the minute I started there that there was really no way I was going to be there for 10 years. I, I knew that. I knew that it was a it was going to be a portion of things. And then I was either going to go start a business or I was going to start a law firm or I was going to do something. But this wasn't a, a place I was going to be forever. And I always knew that in my heart. I always felt that very strongly. And it was never a question in my mind that I was going to do something on my own. So I want to hear a little bit more about something I mentioned in my intro, which was you launched your business from a parking garage, which is something I took off of your about page. So tell us a little bit, because that's a little intriguing. I don't know anyone else that's launched a business from a parking garage. That's one of my fondest memories of sort of getting the firm off the ground. So like I mentioned, I was working at this law firm out of out of law school and I subscribe to the Tarzan theory in life. My dad taught me this theory. And the theory goes like this. Tarzan never let go of the rope he was holding on to until he had another rope. <laughs> so if you're going to leave your job, you better have another one lined up. And you don't just like let go of the rope and see what happens. So I was trying to see if I could start this law firm on my own. And I had no idea whether it was going to work or not. So on the nights and the weekends, I was developing a website. Keep in mind, this is 2007 timeframe. So not quite as easy to develop a website then as it is now. Kind of getting this website together, getting it launched, and then trying to figure out, okay, can I get anybody to hire me? And when I was 27 years old, everybody would tell me this, but I would look like I was probably 18 or 19. So I had a baby face. And I even had one marketing guy that I was hiring to help me with some search engine optimization tell me, you should put a little powder in your hair when you take a picture. You know, maybe kind of look a little older. Maybe that'll help. And so I'll never forget him saying that. I just thought it was so funny. So I was always worried, like, is anybody going to hire me? I'm only 27. Most people want to hire older lawyers. But the advantage you have when you're younger is you don't have to charge a lot. So I, so I started advertising on Google AdWords. Google AdWords still works today for some people. It's very expensive. Back then, it was very cheap. And and it was easy to give it a shot. And I would get messages from people that went on the website, had found us from Google, and had sent a contact form in with their phone number and email. And they had a whatever question. And I needed to call them back. And the one thing that I knew about being in business is you cannot just like get a lead and then not respond for a day. Forget it. That person's moved on. So I would get the lead. I felt terrible about this because I didn't want to do anything. I loved my boss and I never wanted to do anything that would be viewed as 
detrimental to anything she was doing in her firm. And none of the work I was taking, it would have ever been work that they would have done. So it was like a completely separate thing. I didn't want to take the call on premises, right? I didn't want to like make the phone call to this potential client of mine from my office with this other law firm. So parking garages across the street where I had parked my car for the day. I went over to the parking garage. I'd go down to my car, close the door. It, when you get into a car in a parking garage and it's not turned on yet, and there's nobody else in the garage because it's the middle of the day, it's so silent because I'm in the middle of Washington, D.C. I'm downtown. <laughs> and you just close that door and it's like, bump, and then it's just you and it's like total silence. And <laughs> I would make these calls and I would just talk to people, you know, hey, yeah, I can help you with that. Sure. This is what we would do. This is what we would charge. And lo and behold, people were like, yes, let's go forward. And I was like, you're serious. You know, like, yeah, I'm like, all right, all right. And then I would have to figure out how to take your money. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so I remember one day I was coming out of the garage. I was so excited because I just signed up two people in one day. Now, at this point in time, I was charging $129 to do a trademark filing. And I remember calling my dad saying, Dad, I just made like $260 today. If I can make $260 every day, I don't need my full time job. And he started laughing. I said, what are you laughing about? He goes, how are you going to support a family on $260 a day? You have no idea how expensive that is. <laughs> and so I was like, dad, I have no family. I have no wife. I don't have a fiance. What are you talking about? But you know, he was giving me a hard time basically. And so lo and behold, I kept taking on more work. I was able to raise rates a little bit, get the margins where I needed them to get. And I was like, oh, I have to quit my job now because this could be full time. Like I have enough going on. This could be full time. So that's when I went in to tell my boss, you know, hey, I'm 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 gonna leave. And and she did one of the kindest things that someone's ever done for me in that moment. I I'll never forget I was walking in her office saying, trying to figure out what I was gonna say, like how I was gonna tell her what I was doing. Cause I wasn't gonna lie. I was gonna say, I'm gonna start a law firm. I wasn't gonna hide the ball from her. So remember I walked in there, I said, Hey Kathy, can I talk to you? Sure, sure. I said, it's not gonna happen tomorrow. I said, but you know, I want to find a way to kind of transition out of things here. I think I'm gonna try to start my own firm. And she like looked up, she was like working on something, you know, busy lawyer. And she looked up at me <laughs> and she goes, are you serious? And I said, yeah. She goes, for real? And I go, yeah, no, for real. I really want to do this. I think, I think it's something that I really should do. And she goes, I think that is so cool. And that's what she said to me. I think that is so cool. And I was like, <laughs> I thought I was going to get tossed out. Right. And she goes, well, how are you going to do this? I said, well, I don't know, I'm going to get a website and, and advertise. What kind of clients are you going to get? I was like, I, I don't know. I mean, I'll find clients. And she goes, you know, because older lawyers don't really think about getting clients from Google AdWords, right? It's not, it's a totally new thing to them. So she goes to me, she goes, look, I don't know how this is going to go for you. I could tell she didn't think it was going to go well for me at all, right? And she goes, I don't know how this is going to go for you, but what if you stayed and worked here for me part-time? Just bill me for whatever time you're billing our clients. And then you go try to get this thing started and see how it goes. And I was like, sold. So basically, she gave me a part-time job, which she paid me very well for. And I could work as much or as little as I needed to. And I could get to work on my own thing. And, I, and by the way, I had office space because I could. she was perfectly happy to let me work from her office on my own thing. Now, how kind is that? I mean, who does that? I don't, I don't think I would do that if one of my lawyers. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. She really facilitated your dream in a lot of ways and really helped springboard you. We only have a few minutes left, but I'm, I'm so curious why IP law? What was it that drew you to that? And why do you think it's so important? After I graduated from cleaning bathrooms, <laughs> I did all the marketing <laughs> for my dad. So 
I would write radio ads. I would design newspaper ads. I would come up with marketing strategies, sales, things that people should do on the phone, all that kind of stuff. I love marketing. And so when you're talking to people about trademarks, you're talking to them about their marketing. And because I grew up in a small business and I know how small business owners think and I, I know what goes on in that world, I could just talk to people about the business side of what they're doing as well as the legal side of what's going on with the trademark. It's, it was such a natural expansion of what I had done kind of in my later years with my dad. It's just, it was very second nature for me and something that I, I still love. I love branding. I love marketing. And so it was just a very natural fit from the legal side. I totally get it. It's a natural fit, but it, I'm going to go out on a limb here and just think that you think it's really critically important. And I'm going to guess some of our listeners wouldn't know why it's so important. So can you just give us that little bit of a elevator pitch? Like, why is this such an important thing for business owners? Sure. I mean, the number one thing I always tell people is that the last thing you want to do is start a business or start selling a product and have a problem with the name, meaning that you're infringing on someone else's name. So a lot of times people come from a trademark for trademark registration thinking they want to protect their name from somebody else stealing it. But in today's world, the marketplace is already so crowded. We have to make sure you haven't accidentally stolen something from somebody else. Because if you spend a year or two building equity into something and then get that cease and desist letter, that can be devastating. So my the biggest thing I do for people, and honestly, the biggest thing that people underappreciate that we're doing for them is the level of clearance searching that we're doing to make sure that we don't see anything that's potentially a problem. And if we see something that's a problem, kind of advising them about how big of a problem it might be or not be. So that's the number one reason I recommend people go through the trademark registration process. And unfortunately, there's a lot of providers out there that don't do the clearance work the way they should. So you have to be really careful about hiring someone that'll that'll do that work properly. But then of course, once you get through that, having that registration can be incredibly important in a crowded marketplace because if somebody does start to ride on your coattails or do something too close, you've got a great tool in the toolkit to tell them to go knock it off. Or if you have to, get into a legal action and and get a positive result for yourself. So these are all things that, much like anything else that's legal in your business, if you start earlier and do the homework and put everything in place before you have a problem, dealing with the problem is 10 times easier and about 100 times cheaper. So it's it's preventative maintenance. It's really really important. And that's my short elevator pitch on it. But you don't have to take it from me. (laughs) Well, no, because you can take it from me who had the experience of working with Josh. And... Yeah, and we ran into some interesting complexities. And this is part of why I say working with you was so incredibly awesome and you were so very helpful. And so we will have all of Josh's information in the show notes. But before we wrap up the podcast, one last question for you, Josh. If you could go back in time to that mm, youngish boy who's working in your dad's shop, knowing that at some point, this is also going to be your future. What words of wisdom would you share with him? So my dad had a sign up in his office when I was growing up, and I never realized how important it was until I got older. The sign said, the end is nothing. The road is all. You know, as a kid growing up, I always wanted to get to the end. I always wanted to be the lawyer or be the executive and be in the corner office or be the boss. I always aspired to be what my dad was. I was never happy and never content where I was. And I think that that's a shame because there's a lot of years in my life that I didn't enjoy to the fullest because I was so worried about what was coming next or how I was going to get to the next place. And that might just come with age and perspective, but I really 
encourage my, even I encourage my kids. I'm like, they'll say something about, oh, when we get to next summer, I can't wait for. I say, yeah, but it's winter now and there's snow on the ground. Let's enjoy this moment. And so those are the things that I think you really have to focus on in life that if you get to a place where you've had success, your happiness is normally not that much different than when you were on the road, if you really pay attention to that. And of course, money makes things easier. Career security makes things easier. I'm not going to lie about that. But I really wish I would enjoy the road a little bit more because that's what life is. We're just constantly on the road. Amazing. It sort of perfectly describes the perfectly imperfect journey as well to really kind of enjoy the ride along the way. Well, Josh, thank you so much for joining us today. We really, really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Well, I think that's going to wrap up our episode for now. For those of you listening, we really hope you enjoyed it and would love it if you would share our podcast with a friend, give us a rating on iTunes, or post it to your own social media. You can find information and previous episodes at flowingeastandwest.com. Please join us next time for Flowing East and West, The Perfectly Imperfect Journey.